patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody. Welcome to episode 68 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Today's episode is part two of our conversation with John Kaskin and Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris. In part one, which is also episode 66, we covered a lot of the basics about China's maritime strategy and the U.S. maritime challenges that are we're facing in this day and age. We covered some areas of national security, as well as some of the economics as well. And in this conversation, we will be focusing more on the Jones Act and the Navy League and its contributions to the wider discourse and the wider sustainability of U.S. maritime. I have linked episode 66 down in the show notes below, Feel free to listen to both of these episodes in any order you like. Once again, Sinclair Harris is LMI's Director of Business Development for the Department of the Navy, and John Kaskin is the National Vice President for Legislative Affairs and Co-Chair of the Merchant Marine Affairs Committee at the Navy League. Now, we will resume with a brief wrap-up of our conversation about U.S. national security challenges in the Indo-Pacific, and then we'll move on to the Jones Act and the Navy League and wrap this whole conversation all together for all of you to enjoy. Now, back to the conversation. I do think that this does span multiple administrations. I think a lot of the issues that we're touching upon, we've touched upon a whole range of issues that really do span presidential administrations, not just one party, it's not just one Congress or one presidential term. This really is a multi-administration, multi-Congress approach that we need to look at. Uh, John, I'm going to turn to you now, and I'd like to ask you a bit more about your your thoughts on what China is doing right now. Uh, Sinclair mentioned uh, flying jets near uh, Taiwan, over the Taiwan Strait. Um, he even mentioned uh, fishing vessels too. I mean, that I think just goes to show how grand and how uh, holistic, as Sinclair put it out there, how holistic the strategy is. Uh, what are some other things that you want to add when it comes to what you found with regards to what China's maritime strategy is You know, within the next few years, maybe up until that big year for, for them, which is 2049? Well, I mean, uh, I, I think, the, as I mentioned, uh, that book says they want to become the, uh, the, the global power, uh, certainly the power in the Pacific, and that they want us out of there. I mean, that is their long-term strategy. Um, and to do what uh, Sink has uh, said is to, they want to keep all their neighbors around them nervous. Uh, just like they were in the 14th century when uh, they had to pay tribute uh, or they would come across the border. I mean, that is 
you know, they, they want to get back to where, uh, to where it was, that they were the world power, the global power uh, of that time. Uh, and, you know, they think that's their rightful place. Uh, with respect to uh, what they've done in the, in the shipping and shipbuilding in the Navy arena, a lot of that is uh, delineated uh, in the Navy League white paper that's on our website called China's Use of the Maritime for Global Power, Demands and Strong uh, Commitment uh, to America, which demands a strong uh, commitment to uh, uh, American maritime. I mean, they, they basically have the ability uh, with their their uh, military, as you say, the fishing fleet, uh, the maritime militia, uh, their Coast Guard, and the Navy fleet uh, to certainly out, uh, number us and likely outgun us uh, in the area close to their coast. And so what you would need to do uh, from a strategic perspective uh, is, is uh, what uh, Sinclair said, is, is to give the, our allies, our treaty allies, um, the capabilities and capacity for them to become hedgehogs, which is make it um, too painful for the Chinese to exert direct control of those countries, go over the border, So, as they have done in Vietnam in the past. So, I mean, it's an issue of uh, if we had to defend Taiwan, uh, the best way to do it, considering we no longer have the free reign of, of uh, sailing two aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait like we did decades ago, we're going to need to have the Taiwanese have the defensive systems to make it too bloody uh, for the Chinese to make it that, to decide it is that uh, the right day to go across that strait. Uh, and it, that's certainly a possibility because uh, of the way that the Chinese government is structured, the loss of enormous number of their people uh, could have a significant impact on the on the uh, stability of their government. So, I mean, you have to figure out how to work with our allies to give them those types of capabilities because the logistics are not in our favor. I mean, they had to go to Taiwan. They got a hundred miles. For us to go to Taiwan, we've got thousands of miles, and there's a lot of alligators in that swamp before you can get there. And so ground forces are not the way you're going to defend it, and uh, the amount of naval assets that we have uh, in the next 10 or 20 years, uh, unless we do something, are certainly going to be inadequate on a one-for-one -one basis. So we just have to, we'll have to come up with different policies and strategies to address this, uh, this concern. Absolutely. And Sinclair, would you like to add anything to John's answer? Yeah, just, just a couple of quick things, basically to reiterate or to double tap on what John has talked about. So, you know, the, 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 the Chinese are very smart in how they operate their three fleets, if you will, their fishing fleet, their maritime patrol or Coast Guard fleet, and then the PLN Navy. So they'll send... First, the fishing fleet, which seems fairly innocent until they fished you out of your livelihood by taking up all of the catch off of, uh, especially some of the countries that don't have great capacity. If you talk to our friends in the Coast Guard, they'll talk about un, uh, un, unregulated fishing, and they'll tell you how much of a disaster it is for some of these countries, which put them into a deleterious uh, situation. But 
but they'll operate that. And then, you know, if you decide to push back on that fishing fleet, then the Coast Guard will show up. All right. And and now they've got a little bit more kinetic capacity and because they are signatures in the law of the sea and we are not, um, they've got the right to to defend their fishing fleet or you know, to operate that way. And then if you decide to push back on that Coast Guard fleet, here comes the PLN Navy. So they, they can ratchet this thing up and down against uh, any number of nations, including the United States, and make it very hard. Now, I mentioned the law of the sea because I mentioned it, I've been, and many, many others, every CNO, I think, and every commandant of the Coast Guard has talked about it for long before I even joined the Navy over 30 four years ago, plus six years retirement, uh, that the United States needs to be a signature of the law of the sea so that we have as much uh, legal right and we we are working inside of the international legal framework and have that uh, lawfare as one of our ways to approach China as possible. Right now, we don't. And I think it, it takes away from our credibility. It takes away from our the maturity about how we would address a more aggressive China with their three fleets um, that operate uh, against us and against uh, our foes. And I, I ended up with a conversation about the gray zone and operation in the gray zone. This has become more and more popular again. Um, it was popular for a while, then it lost popularity, it's back again. Uh, but operations in the gray zone is something that China has gotten a whole lot better at than us, and we need to get better. And last episode, we covered a lot about some of those challenges that the U.S. maritime industry is facing. We're seeing also challenges in the Indo-Pacific, not to mention the uh, Chinese maritime strategy, which is very integral into understanding what those threats are ongoing uh, as we speak. We're going to start off with uh, a piece of legislation that was mentioned in the last episode, which is about the Jones Act. And I'm going to have John kick us off here with discussing what the Jones Act is and what significance it has on the economy and the way Sinclair put it in the last episode. We are a maritime nation. Uh, how, so, John, how does the Jones Act also fit in with the idea of the U.S. as a maritime nation? Well, first of all, uh, the Jones Act uh, is in, incorporated into the, uh, the Mercurine Act of uh, 1920. Uh, and But it was a follow-on of legislation that has been around since the founding of this nation, uh, which basically currently requires that cargo moved between two U.S. points must be on a U.S.-built, U.S. flag, U.S. crewed uh, uh, merchant ship. And so uh, that has provided, since the beginning of this nation, work for our shipyards as well as our mariners. Uh, and it provides a, a capability to ensure that our uh, non-contiguous uh, uh, states and territories uh, are serviced uh, with uh, a, a reliable, uh, dependable uh, merchant service, uh, cargo service. So the Jones Act supports a movement of cargo to Alaska, Hawaii, 
uh, in Puerto Rico in particular. It also uh, supports the movement of, uh, of bulk uh, products like oil from Alaska to refineries in the U.S., as well as the movement of refined uh, uh, products along the coast. So today, it makes up uh, the majority of the ocean-going U.S. flag fleet. It makes up 96 of 180 ships. That's the ocean-going part of the Jones Act, but it also means that all cargo moving in the inland waterways also must be U.S. built, uh, U.S. crewed, the U.S. flag vessels. Uh, and there are uh, thousands of jobs associated with the tug and barge industry that services the inland waterways as well as our coastal, coastwise trade. Uh, there's some statistics that uh, we have in a uh, paper called uh, a Legislative Path to a Maritime uh, Transportation Strategy, uh, which is also on the Legislative Affairs section of the Navy League website. Uh, and what it says uh, uh, is that uh, uh, there's thousands of jobs, let's see here, um, there are, there are 130,000 men and women work directly in the domestic maritime industry. Uh, it provides uh, $41.6 billion of labor compensation, more than $154 billion in annual economic output, and by extension, 650,000 jobs, uh, according to a study by Price Waterhouse. So uh, it is means that cargo going inside the, the waters of the United States are are secure because we're not allowing foreign um, personnel and foreign foreign shipping, uh, which we don't have any control of uh, inside the middle of our nation. So those are those are the, that's the Jones Act and some of the benefits uh, that it provides. Excellent. And just to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, you know, there are those who argue that the Jones Act raises consumer prices in part because of those some of those stipulations. Uh, what would you say to critics of the Jones Act and maybe how that how your answer also plays a part in not just the economic importance of the United States, but tying in back to some of the national security elements too, uh, some of those challenges which we mentioned in the last episode. Well, there's no question that uh, the Jones Act is an interference in the free market uh, because it requires uh, a specific uh, um, platform built in the United States, decreed by U.S. citizens, which both of those are higher cost uh, than what you can obtain overseas. Um, however, uh, because for the non-contiguous trades, uh, there have been studies that shows that the actual impact on the, on consumer prices, let's say in uh, Hawaii or Puerto Rico, uh, are in line with what they are in the continental United States. Uh, it's because uh, both uh, those uh, locations are also serviced by foreign shipping um, that are not moving cargo from the United States. So Hawaii gets a lot of uh, its goods just like we do from, uh, from the Far East. Uh, Puerto Rico gets a lot of its uh, petroleum products and other goods uh, from the Caribbean and uh, Latin America. So it isn't something that uh, generates a severe impact on their uh, economies. With respect to the economy of the United States, um, it does have some impact. Uh, however, 
then you have to argue what, whether the, uh, the benefits associated with those impacts are outweighed uh, by the negatives. And as you mentioned, it's a national security impact uh, that justifies that involvement. And what are the what are the benefits? Well, one is it does provide cap- uh, work for U.S. shipyards, which we do need uh, to help maintain that industrial base that to uh, support uh, naval construction uh, as well as uh, the ability to obtain ships uh, in case that we can't uh, obtain them overseas, which have been the case in the past. But it also is, it, it provides uh, the majority of the mariners that would be necessary to crew uh, our reserve fleet ships. Those uh, U.S. citizens on those ocean-going ships are fully qualified to operate the, the 55 ships uh, or 50 to 55 ships that are in the reserve fleets today that only have the partial crews of nine uh, or 10 people. Uh, and they have to get another 20 people in order to sail in five days. Well, where do those people come from? They have to be uh, from uh, mariners that are on vacation from sailing on those ships, uh, on the Jones Act and foreign uh, trade ships. But the Jones Act makes up 96 out of the 180 ships. So if you didn't have those vessels with those crews, we wouldn't have enough mariners to be able to sustain operations uh, for uh, in a contested environment uh, that would last more than a couple of months. So, you know, those are the reasons that uh, the Jones Act was implemented at the beginning of this nation. It was felt that we needed to have the ability uh, to move our goods. We didn't want to depend on the British, and we wanted to help sustain our shipbuilding industrial base at that time, the wooden shipbuilding industries that we had in the, the Northeast. So, you know, this, this, and they, we felt that that was necessary for national security back then, and uh, we still do, uh, believe that uh, it's a justification uh, for the for the cabotage laws that we have today. And we're not the only country that has cabotage laws. Around two thirds of the countries in the uh, ninety-one of the uh, countries uh, uh, in the United Nations have cabotage laws. Not all of them have the, sh- the U.S. build. I mean, the, the domestic build requirement. But the, this is not a, an unusual piece of legislation. Excellent, and I I truly admire what you all are doing when it comes to explaining the Jones Act to people, telling people about how this fits in with the objectives that we want and the uh, high standards that we we should be placing for our nations. Um, and I I just want to make that quick point, and this is a good lead into uh, asking. Uh, Sinclair about the Navy League. Uh, this is a very, very important organization and certainly one that uh, my father, who is a mariner, is very much involved in. Um, and it, it represents what I love about the Navy League is that not only does it have incredible history, uh, but also uh, just with the impact it has, uh, it's really unimaginable just how grand this uh, maritime side of our nation is. Um, and I, I hope that more people over the course of the next few years and decades will learn more about the Navy League and, and really the role of shipping in America. Uh, Sinclair, uh, tell us about uh, how the Navy League was started, uh, what its mission is, and what the organization is up to nowadays when it comes to uh, those pillars about shipping, about protecting um, our our, our maritime economy, as well as all the men and women who are part of it every single day. So the Navy League 
was founded in 1902. And John, you can correct me if I, I get the dates wrong, but uh, founded in 1902 by Teddy Roosevelt. And, um, and, and as you could well imagine from his standpoint, the importance of a strong Navy to a strong and growing country, uh, uh, second to none. So that's where the founder, founding came from. Now our mission, uh, we enhance the morale of the sea service personnel, that's Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and Merchant Mariners and their families through our national and our council level programs. We provide a, a voice to help to educate the public, to remind them we're a maritime nation, to uh, talk to Congress on the importance of the sea services and our nation's defense, well-being and economic prosperity. And we support youth programs. We have uh, the Sea Cadets uh, and, and some other programs uh, through uh, junior ROTC or Naval ROTC programs and the like uh, to expose our young people to the values that come from support and service in the sea services. So our mission is to try to educate, to inform, and to support. Uh, we do it around the country and the world. We've got uh, Navy League uh, groups, actually globally. Um, in fact, other countries are beginning to copy the United States, uh, the Navy League of the United States, because they see the importance of uh, uh, maritime and sea power in their own nations, and we work with them uh, in, in trying to do that because we want our country and want our country to be strong. We want uh, to preserve uh, the free communication across the seas. What, what did I miss uh, there, John? I think you've covered it. I mean, the, the, we basically are structured uh, with uh, a headquarters that focuses on the advocacy and the education part of it. and. And so when we do have uh, in our maritime policy, which uh, Sinclair is responsible for, for, for helping to produce every two years, uh, we, it says what we think that each of the sea services need uh, in order to better accomplish uh, their mission. And we advocate for those uh, our recommendations uh, with the members of Congress. And we have... Uh, uh, a grassroots vehicle where we take our local councils, which provide local services uh, to the sea service units that are nearby, but also uh, are able to contact their members of Congress at the grassroots level to help communicate that this is not just a lobbying effort. It is something that a large number of Americans feel is important. And we, and that by, through that uh, vehicle, through fly-ins and, and uh, virtual fly-ins, we're able to, to help uh, achieve some of our objectives that, that are in the maritime policy. Excellent. And uh, Sinclair, I want to ask you now about some of those policies and legislative solutions uh, or courses of action that our policymakers can take to address um, the many of those challenges that we covered in the previous episode. Can you walk us through some of the ways in which you know, the United States, whether it's the federal government, maybe even down to local governments too, uh, how they can address some of those gaps in shipbuilding capacity uh, in regards to the number of ships and really just overall 
bringing the, that capacity in, not just through industry, but also through government and through national security as well? That's an easy question. Join the Navy League of the United States. Now, I know that your podcast is not meant as a commercial, but there you go. Join the Navy League of the United States. Number two, have your kids consider the Sea Scouts, the Sea Cadets, okay, and those junior ROTC programs. We get about 11% of our officers uh, coming out of programs like that every year. Uh, Number three, uh, after you join the Navy League of the United States, become active. Come on to Washington with us when we do our uh, our fly-in on Capitol Hill uh, to talk to our legislative leaders about the importance of the uh, sea services, about the importance of the maritime, uh, so that they can have that in their minds when they make those tough choices that they have to make uh, every day in terms of our budget. Get them to push for the United States to ratify the United Nations law of the sea. We got to get off of our backside and ratify it, become members of it, and then drive for change. Make sure that we hold China accountable and others in terms of the legal uh, ways that we operate at sea. So join the Navy League, get your kids involved, ratify the law of the sea. Fantastic. Uh, I, w- I wish that there was like a raffle for uh, for those listening and a winner of that raffle hopefully would maybe make a trip to D.C. with Sinclair and John because it seems like they would be a perfect, <laughs> perfect addition to a fly-in. I just want to put that out there as an idea for all of you. Uh, uh, John, I, I want to ask you, um, since you focus a lot on the legislative side of things with legislative affairs, what have been some a lot of those conversations like with policymakers, and what sort of areas of legislation or policy do you think uh, could be very useful in addressing um, some of the uh, concerns and threats that we mentioned in the previous episode about the threat from China and others that are facing the United States? Well, there's there's several uh, initiatives that we've been supporting that would help address, for example, the, the shipbuilding industrial base. Uh, Sen- uh, Senator Worker and Congressman Garamendi have been uh, sponsoring an Energized American Shipbuilding Act uh, over the last several years, and we've been trying to help get it moving, uh, at least to get a hearing on it and then get voted on. And what that would do is require... Uh, what what we call is commercial cargo preference. Right now, car, uh, government cargo preference, which means 100% of DOD cargo and other and some other agencies, and 50% of agricultural goods um, uh, aid uh, have to be shipped on U.S. Uh, flag ships. Um, but that's not keeping more than let's say a dozen or so ships uh, in foreign trade. If you want to expand that, you're going to have to say that a certain amount of our exports are going to have to be on U.S. flagships. And this Energized American Shipbuilding Act would require a smaller, small percentage of LNG and crude oil uh, to be on U.S. flagships, gradually increasing up to about 10 or 15 percent, and then a certain percentage to be U.S. built. So that would provide work for shipyards and would provide additional ships to mariners. 
Um, so those are the types of initiatives that we've been supporting. We've also been supporting um, in increasing the, the, the Jones Act. Uh, the, as I say, uh, right now it just supports the non-contiguous trades and the movement of bulk cargoes. Um, but another possible trade would be moving uh, uh, trailers uh, or their chassis and containers uh, on uh, on domestic uh, trailer ships, like the ships that move uh, that type of cargo between uh, uh, Washington, the state of Washington, and Alaska. We could get a lot of traffic off of the interstates, and those would be military useful ships. Uh, and uh, they could, you know, there is no capacity constraints right now up and down the coast, uh, particularly on the East Coast uh, and even on the West Coast. The roll on, roll off ports are not the ones that are congested, like Port Winnemi and San Diego, where, where a lot of the cars come in. It's a different location, and there really isn't a problem. Actually, there, <laughs> there's a lack of uh, in of imports and exports uh, out of those uh, ports right now because of lack of uh, chips. So if we could, the, that would be a program that wouldn't co cost a lot of money, would require some government involvement. And that would basically would need uh, essentially a relook at the Marine Act of 1936, which is what we're promoting, that we have a uh, an independent uh, third party entity uh, take a look at the, the programs like that construction differential subsidy program I mentioned to you that uh, was terminated by uh, President Reagan. Well, what do we need to replace it today? Uh, so uh, there's a lot of different ideas out there, like uh, the dual-use vessel pro I just mentioned. But we really, any program gonna, that we suggest is going to have to be looked at for its economic impact and cost. And we really need to have uh, another a, a relook at that old policy set of policies and see what we need in the future. We're not going to get more work for shipyards. We're not going to get more ships under U.S. flag unless we implement new programs. New programs are not going to be costless. They're, or they're going to be like the Jones Act. They're going to be basically uh, an, a mandate that a certain amount of cargo will be on our U.S. flag ships. The Chinese have no problem doing that. They have no problem having Chinese goods going on Costco and uh, uh, and, and there are other lines. You know, they're moving about a third of their total cargo on their flagships and they're built in their shipyards. They don't need a piece of a, a legislation happening to, to make that happen. They're all state-owned enterprises. The government just makes it happen. Uh, we're a little bit more cumbersome in having uh, getting that type of policy implemented, but that's what we really need to do uh, in order to try to turn things around. Absolutely. And Sinclair, would you like to add anything to John's answer? You know, something we haven't talked about, which I think is very important, is the Arctic. And, you know, we all know what's going on with climate change. We all know what's going on with sea level rise. We all know what's going on in terms of the Northwest Passage and the, the, the push, the, the, the rollback, if you will, of, of the Arctic. Well, guess, guess who's heading up there and militarizing the Arctic? today and have been doing it for years, Russia. Guess who is building icebreakers, even though they are not an Arctic nation, they call themselves a near Arctic nation. And I got air quotes in my on either side of my head as I say this, China. We gotta get serious about the Arctic. 
the Coast Guard has, has put out a, a policy last year, I believe they call it the, their strategic outlook uh, for the Arctic. Uh, but we got to get serious. And, and there's, there's, it's going to have effects, I believe, on our economy. It will have effects uh, on our trade. And, and none of those are going to be to our liking as Americans uh, if we don't get serious about the Arctic, about building icebreakers, uh, and not just one at a time. Very good. I love what both of you have said. I mean, there's so much there for lawmakers and members of the public, too, to also think about as well, because this really is and should be a dynamic process of people from all different walks of life, everyone in the maritime industry, people who obviously care about those goods and certain goods running around the country and being delivered. These are really, really top issues. And uh, I want to now transition into our final phase of our conversation today. And uh, John and Sinclair, you both have been fantastic yes, just sharing so much knowledge and uh, so many experiences. And I'd like to just wrap it all up with the theme of this podcast of Washington's Farewell Address. And I've put out you know six principles out there for people to reflect upon. And those are patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, and civility. Uh, Sinclair, I'll start with you first. Uh, what, which one or which ones out of those six do you think are, are most relevant to our conversation today and the issues? And, and, I, and he's holding up right now, he's holding up one of the best books out there, George Washington's Rules of Civility. So I know that he's going to absolutely hammer this question and he's going to nail it. <laughs> so earlier this year, maybe last year, I can't remember when I did it, I changed my face, my LinkedIn profile to read Embrace Civility. And I did that uh, purposely and I still believe uh, in doing it today. We've got to become a more civil society. Imagine America if we were a more civil society to each other, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of economic statute, regardless of any of those things that uh, we hold against each other, it seems like all the time. And we were more civil to each other. We had a discord that was more civil in our schools, in our school boards, in our Congress, uh, in our media. You can imagine what we could accomplish by being more civil and, and listening and actually listening to each other. I think it would support all the areas that you're talking about, um, of patriotism, of faith, of our national unity, education, our, and and maybe even our fiscal responsibility. If we were more civil to each other, we listened to each other, we gave each other a break and started talking with each other instead of at each other. Wow, very excellent. And uh, I think that book really helped out a lot when you showed that that visual, you know, and I, I really, I absolutely agree with you, Sinclair. And I, I do think that Regardless of the topic or issue, we do need to to take that value into account. John, I'm going to direct the same question to you. Which of those six? It could be multiple ones as well, or uh, different ones uh, other than uh, Sinclair's pick of civility. But what would you say are big contributors to uh, to understanding the impact of Washington's farewell address and the issues that we are facing today? 
I guess I would initially focus on education. Um, I mean, if uh, if uh, if uh, folks are brought up and 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 their education and they learn why this country was established, it's all of its goods and bads, but why it was established and why the Constitution was written, uh, and what are the the what are the aspects of that Constitution that what makes this country different than uh, the, all the other countries that existed at that time, and that has allowed us to thrive over the last a couple hundred years. Uh, I think that would be important because when you understand what was the what generated this country and what were the rights that were given to the individuals um, by the people, um, which was completely different than how uh, the rest of the world was operating at the time. I mean, that, then I think that you will get uh, more national unity because you'll understand, you know, what was the basis of this country and what are the pluses and how did we become the, the greatest economy and how would, w did we uh, be able to accomplish what we did in World War One and World War Two, uh, and since no, the te the technology that we've developed and all of the other capabilities that make this uh, this country unique, and I think that will help uh, in order for people to understand why it's worth defending. I mean, what we're talking about today are the various issues of national security that we think are important, and if people understand that it's important, then they will will understand why the fiscal investment's necessary. So the fiscal responsibility uh, value is associated with that. So if you understand why, then you will understand uh, you know, what you need to do in order to produce the results. And I think that will be uh, uh, the, uh, the greatest uh, outcome that we could get by, and of course we need to do it uh, in a civil way because not everybody needs you know, it's going to have the same opinion, but we need to be able to discuss it. And then uh, after we make, you know, uh, make a determination and, and a vote is made, um, then we need to, to have the national unity to execute it. And we can't just say, you know, we get everybody has their right to have their say, but afterwards we need to work together to execute. So that's, that, that's how I would look at those other aspects. Great answers. Great answers. Uh, our final quick question, I'll start with John and I'll end with Sinclair here. John, what are the best ways for people to learn more about the Navy League? I'll be sure to include the links that you both have sent me down in the show notes below so that people can access those. But just real quick, how, uh, how can people learn more about the Navy League and what you all are up to? Well, uh, the Navy League website, which is www.navyleague.org, um, is, is the first place to go uh, because it will talk about uh, uh, all aspects of the organization uh, on, the, on the primary page. And then um, it's a very inexpensive organization to join, uh, an electronic membership where you get an electronic uh, copy of Sea Power Magazine, which is a which has been a, a well-respected magazine. I used to get it in the Pentagon uh, and always look through it because it focuses on the various uh, uh, goings on in the four sea services. Um, I think is showing show me. Holding up the Sea Power magazine, magazine. <laughs> and 
the, the one of the most recent additions is, is quoting me on it on a, on a sea lift uh, matter. So, um, so those that's what I would suggest they do for twenty five dollars. You become a member. Uh, you'll get more, uh, and then you can join a local council. And then every council has uh, uh, has different uh, programmatics, uh, whether it's youth programs or so supporting lo local units. Um, and, so, and you can engage in that to whatever level you like or, or not at all, or just support the national advocacy. So that's what I would recommend. Great. Sinclair, anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Join the Navy League. Join the Navy League. Join the Navy League. Hey, I really appreciate the time you spent with us, uh, Sherman. I would ask people to read. Read more. Turn the TV off and actually read. And whether you read Sea Power, Proceedings, uh, the Navy Historical Foundation magazine, or something, just read. And, you know, there's, there's tons of great information out there on websites that are credible, like the Center for Naval Analysis, like the Naval War College, like the Naval Postgraduate School, you know, from this maritime aspect for sure. But just read. And then lastly, be kind to each other. Take time to be kind. Wonderful. Well, well, John and Sinclair, thank you both so much for a wonderful episode. This was really, really informative. I learned a lot from both of you today. Um, and not to mention the fact that you both work so hard on behalf of the Navy League and really on behalf of the nation. I really do think that your work is so important. So thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for putting this on, uh, allowing us to have a discussion. Thank you for having us. And that will wrap it up for today's conversation in episode 68. Thank you all to the audience so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Make sure to check out the links down below in the show notes to learn more about the Navy League and its activities and advocacy work. Also make sure to subscribe to our email list at shermantyloski.com. Link is also in the show notes below. Get the latest news and announcements and what is happening in the Friends and Fellow Citizens world. I hope you will sign up and get the latest news and episodes right from your inbox. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.